created live on Fireside. Welcome, I'm Laura Lee Binstock, and this is a Trauma Survivor Thrivers Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me live on Fireside Chat, where you can be a part of the conversation as my virtual audience. I'm your host, Lori Lee Binstock. Everyone has an opportunity to ask me or our guest questions by requesting to hop on stage or sending a message in the chat box. I will try to get to you, but I do ask that everybody be respectful. Today's guest is Melissa Lavasani, founder and chief executive officer of Washington, D.C.-based Psychedelic Medicine Coalition, the first and only member association focusing on advocating for psychedelics at the federal, state, and local levels of government. Prior to founding Psychedelic Medicine Coalition, Melissa was chair woman of decriminalized nature dc and proposer of washington dc's successful 2020 ballot measure initiative 81 the theogenic plant and fungus policy act inspired by her own experience of using psychedelics to heal her severe postpartum depression melissa led the decriminalized nature dc campaign to the largest ballot initiative victory in the history of our nation's capital melissa thank you so much for joining me today Thanks for having me. You know, this is the first time I've actually ever had someone in my studio, which now you know is a closet. I feel so honored. You you should be. (laughs) I would not let a lot of people into my closet, but I do consider you a friend. Um, I met you through this whole movement, the psychedelic movement. Um, And actually, you have some news to share today. Yeah, yeah. We are um, launching a PAC, a political action committee. It's called Psychedelic Medicine Pack. It is a way to engage with everyday citizens on this issue. You know, the coalition is really focused on specifically the psychedelic ecosystem and bringing the industry that is coming out of that ecosystem to the Capitol Hill and getting them to advocate for changes in laws. Um, but we found that it was it's really important to engage the American people on this issue. There's... Um, Regularly, there's stories in the media talking about and hyping up psychedelic medicine, but, you know, getting people interested in this issue and getting them involved in the political process to put leaders in place that will, you know, get behind this issue in Congress and in in state legislatures is really important. That's how, you know, elections is one way to exercise our voice in this country, and that is how um, we can really create change as if current leadership is not supporting psychedelic medicine and the healing of Americans and just like have giving Americans a, a choice in the matter, you know, our, with our mental health care system being so in, in the situation that it's in, um, you know, getting people involved in the political process is just really important. And I think it's going to help us shift um, the stigma around these medicines with government. Well, you yourself was not someone who was someone who did, quote unquote, drugs, right? right? You, right. Uh, and so this is kind of a surprising turn for you. This was what, 2020, 20? 20, yeah, 2019. 2019. Yeah, 2019 is when I like really found the solutions and like stepped into this political process. Um, prior to that, I was a DC government employee. I was working in policy and um, budget 
and um you know working at a, a hyper local level was super gratifying it's like uh the things that I was working on I could see and touch and feel in my everyday life um, being a DC resident and that was great and I thought well this is you know I got my master's degree in policy um, a few years before that I wanted to do something that made Americans lives better I didn't know what it was specifically I thought I would really go into foreign policy <laughs> um, and that's what my entire master's degree was about was foreign policy but you know, I think you, there's a saying, you plan and God laughs, um, my master plan and to just be like a really solid public servant for the city of DC wasn't, wasn't my destiny at all. Um, yeah, I got, I was pregnant with my second child working in what our version of city hall in DC, it's called the Wilson building, um, man having oversight of, um, various district agencies. I was pregnant with my second child. Um, I was dealing with a really difficult pregnancy. Um, I'd been an athlete my whole life. I've always been active. My first pregnancy, I had no issues. But my second one, I I felt it, it was like my he was like t sucking my soul in a way. It was like mm. it was a very hard process. Like my body was just not working the same way that it did. I was of course a little bit older too, having children in my late thirties and. Um, I had really terrible sciatica. So, you know, being active was kind of taken out of the equation completely. I wasn't working out regularly. And because of that, I wasn't really engaged with my health in general. I wasn't eating properly. You know, I was just kind of disenfranchised from the process when you're dealing with, and I had a little taste of what people who deal with chronic pain, you know, mm, deal with on a daily yeah. basis. And that I see like that has a direct result on your mental health. And I was, it got so bad that I was like crawling up the stairs at the end of the night when I couldn't stand up properly. I just couldn't, I was not comfortable. And it, I had what they call antepartum depression and it's not a very well-known term. I never even heard of it before this. Yeah. I've never heard of that. This yeah. is the first time I'm hearing about it. Yeah. I was going in for a regular checkup and, um, my regular physician was on vacation. So I was seeing somebody else. And she walked in the door and she was just like, Hey, how are you doing? And I don't know what it was. Maybe it was like a female voice that, you know, it was comforting or something, but like I immediately started crying mm -hmm. and like, I couldn't even articulate a word. And she immediately picked up her uh, prescription pad and started writing me a prescription antidepressants. And she was like, just take this. You'll feel better immediately. You'll get off of this after you deliver the baby, everything will be fine. This will help you through this process. Now, I knew that that most likely wasn't going to be the case. I've had two friends now take their own lives while they were on antidepressants. Mm, yeah. I've seen other friends who have been on antidepressants of various kinds for 20 years. You know, I, I've seen them struggle with tapering off of one and trying another one and just the uncertainty that goes along with that. So in my mind, I was getting prescribed this drug that's supposed to help me, but I knew that it could have potentially harmed me even further. So, oh my gosh. so I just, I took the prescription and I went home and I was just, it didn't sit well with me. And I, I was talking to my husband, Daniel about it. And he was like, well, if you're not comfortable taking it, like, don't take it. Um, we'll just try and figure this out another way. Um, but there's really, when depression kind of takes over, it's, there's, 
you, you lose the reins of your ship and you, you know, something else takes you, takes you over. Mm -hmm. And, um, no matter what I did, nothing was fixing this and it was just getting worse and worse. Um, but I made it through the pregnancy, delivered the baby. He's healthy, happy, um, the funniest kid alive. <laughs> um, but after, and I felt okay for like a week or two. And then after two weeks, my health just like completely declined. I was in the most severe depression that I've ever been. And I've never had any mental health issues prior to this experience. Right. Um, I had a little bit of postpartum with my first daughter. Um, but that went away as soon as I could you know, get my bearings and get in a routine again. And I started going back to work and working out and fixing my diet. So I had assumed that this would just naturally go away. Like my other experience did or how that other experience happened, but this just progressively got worse. Um, I was also dealing with paralyzing anxiety. I was having panic attacks on a regular basis. I had extreme paranoia. I never like let my husband drive the kids around. Like if the kids were in the car, I was driving is because I was convinced that like he was, you know, going to make a bad judgment call. Like it was very strange the places that my mind went. Um, and then at the, at the very worst part of my depression, I was hearing voices and experiencing mm -hmm. suicidal ideation. So, um, and I believe that term, you know, there's like a term for it. it's called postpartum psychosis. There's just right. like nothing, right. nothing is very little data supports this. Um, and you know, we're, we're not really given any resources, you know, I, you know, this year, mom, after you have a kid, you, your baby has like 20 checkups, but you have your one checkup, your doctor tells you you're cleared to have sex and that you're on your way. And like, that's the milestone for you. No one is regularly checking in on you. And, right. um, and for me, like, I don't have any family in the city. I have like extended family out in the suburbs, but like they're old and they can't really be as hands on, like without somebody coming in and helping, <clears throat> it was really hard to kind of manage all this. And, <clears throat> and, um, so, and I was trying everything and except and you, for antidepressants. Okay. Yeah. That's what I was, I, I was very, the paranoia I had about antidepressants before this experience was just like completely, it completely exaggerated during my depression. Like I was convinced at that point, if I had gotten on these drugs, that that would be my imminent doom. I would take my life. Like that would be the end of me. Mm -hmm. Um, while if I was just dealing with my depression without the antidepressants, like I, I was experiencing suicidal ideation, but I felt like I was in control of that decision, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and whenever I was ready to do that, I would go ahead and do that. And it wasn't a medication that was altering my mind and, you know, making me worse. Right. Right. So, Cause it can, it can. Yeah. I mean, and it can work for people as right. well. I've yeah. seen success stories out of this. Um, but if there is another medication we can take and another therapeutic experience we can have, that's extremely effective so far is what we're learning. Like, why not explore this idea, like, in real life application for the American people? You know, it can't be, it's already proven that it's not worse than what we currently have as options. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
So I stumbled upon a podcast. It's actually a friend of mine who said he listened to this podcast with Paul Stamets and we didn't talk to anybody really about our depression. Our kids, our friends were having kids at the same time. Everyone was like truly enjoying this experience or what it seemed like. Um, and I felt like, God, I'm really struggling right now in my life. Why I have everything I want. I got an amazing husband. I've got two beautiful, healthy children. I, I've got a roof over my head. Everyone's fed and clean and we've got two stable jobs. Like what more could a person want? Right. So there were these also extreme feelings of guilt. Like there, there's something inherently flawed in me that can't appreciate all the gifts that I've been given. And it, it, of course it wasn't that it's very little to do with that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can be surrounded by, I mean, my, my last friend who took her life, she was surrounded by amazing people, an amazing group of women, a community of women that supported her and helped her try to navigate through her depression. She had a husband who was awesome, a, a beautiful daughter, you know, a good job. She worked for the Smithsonian and she had all the support systems in place that you'd think would keep a person alive, but mm. she still decided to take her life. So that's how like dire this disease is, right. is you, you can be in an amazing situation in this phase of your life. But if you are dealing with this illness, you are convinced the exact opposite of everything and that you're worthless and nobody loves you. And, um, it's, it's extremely debilitating and it's, it's now what we are learning. It's impacting many more Americans than we thought it was. Yeah. I so. mean, the woman in Massachusetts, right? The woman mm -hmm. who was dealing with postpartum psychosis yeah. and she took, she, you know, murdered her children right? and she tried to take her own life. Yeah. And it doesn't sound like she didn't have the support that she needed. You know, her husband came out not long after and was like, please forgive her. This is not who she was. Right. And, and you know, that gives me chills, right? Yes, I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I'm like about to cry right now. Um, but yeah, it, it, you, you think about like they, she was on antidepressants. Mm -hmm. She was on multiple antidepressants. I was reading about that. And again, like, I'm not saying that antidepressants are bad because they, you know, for me, they were helpful for me, um, to kind of put out the fire, but that wasn't something that I needed to stay on. Yeah. Um, but like you said, like for her, she was on, um, anti depressants and and the events that happened happened still yeah, so yeah. no one it's it's very unclear what to do in this situation obviously i feel like doctors are still not they still have no idea yeah um but you found a way yeah which i think we really need to explore more can you talk about how you because you started microdosing from the podcast yeah. the yeah. the joe rogan yes podcast. yeah yeah because yeah. of Paul Stamets. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about how you decided, how did, how was that decision making? You heard this podcast mm -hmm. and what was your next thought? Like, I'm going to do it or yeah. were you really hesitant? Um, the next thought was more like exploratory. Like, okay, I, I've heard and I did my own deep dive into the internet about psychedelics in general, especially psilocybin because that's what Paul was talking about in that podcast. And I was like, well, how can I do this legally? You know, like, let's explore what the real options are here. Um, I could apply for a clinical trial, which I did and eventually didn't qualify for. Right. Um, those are very hard to get into. There's very few spots available for people to get into that. And once you're into them, you still might be given a placebo. Um, but 
then I looked at there's retreats in other countries. And at the time, like we have a growing family, we're two right. DC government employees. Like I didn't have like five grand to blow on <laughs> a wellness retreat for right. myself. You know, that sounded so, despite the dire situation that I was in to get on a flight away from my new fam, my, my new baby, my other child, my husband, and like go to Jamaica. It, it, it seemed like, Surely there must be another way, you know? <laughs> right. Well, to do it illegally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. To do it illegally. Unfortunately. And well, and we figured it out. So my husband went on Reddit and YouTube and watched <laughs> videos. I think he, like, and he grew up around mushrooms. Like this mm -hmm. was not a new concept for him. Right. He, he's from Northeastern Alabama. He was taught at 14 years old what, which mushrooms to pick off the cow patties. Yeah. Him and his friends would go listen to music. It was a part of their culture there. Mm -hmm. So he was listening to that podcast being like this, it like confirming everything. He's like, yeah, everything that he's saying is true. He's like, you're never hungover. You feel amazing. You right. don't want to do it very much. It's not like you're going to have like seven days in a row out of a mushroom binge. You do it once, maybe twice, and you're good for a long time. So he's at this point in time, we were in couples counseling because that was the only way I would go to therapy is if he was literally dragging me there. Our marriage was suffering. I was a completely absent mother, like totally disengaged with my children, not knowing what was even going on at school. Um, my nanny was full blown raising my son. And thank God for her because she really filled in and was that emotional support for him. That I really credit her for him being um, such a great kid yeah. because when I wasn't there, those years zero to three are super formative. And they say like the more affection you give your child, the better you are, the better off they are as adults. They're more functional. They're more balanced. Right. And I was just, I was doing the very bare minimum i was feeding i was changing diapers but there was not a lot of love that they were getting from me so um i had and, and my husband filled in when he he's a, has a social work background he understands family mm -hmm. systems so he filled in and where he could where i was absent so i had at least my children were taken care of in that way but um, at this point, we were so desperate for a solution that we were like, well, let's just figure this out from the underground, you know? Mm -hmm. So you can buy spores online legally. So we bought the spores and we bought the rest of the supplies at like um, Lowe's or Amazon. It was not very difficult to find all the supplies. Um, and we just experimented our first time and it was super successful. We had an amazing, they're called a flush. We had an amazing flush. Um <laughs> And it was cool to have this like science experience. It's like, okay, we are growing medicine. This is awesome. Uh, so we did it in our bedroom. It took a long time to like have mushrooms that we could eat, but. How long um, did it take? Oh man. At least it was like three to six months. Oh my goodness. I have like memory issues from this period of time in my life. Right. As, so... as do most people who deal with trauma. Yeah. Like yeah. That. It's, it, that was like the. I feel like the saddest thing is like, oh, there's parts of my kids' lives that like I just don't remember. So I'll mm. go through, my, especially my husband's camera roll, mm. um, and see, and he'll be like, "Do you remember this?" And I'll be like, "I don't. What were we doing? I don't. I really don't recall certain oh. things with them." But um, 
the I remember the mushrooms taking a little while to pick up because it, it's in multiple phases. So it was a, a good three to six months before we had any. So during this time, did you? What was your what was your mental state like? Were you like, okay, well, there is a way, so I'm just going to get through each day? Or was there days that you were just like, fucking, I'm going to kill myself? Yeah, definitely. Because yeah. at this point in time, no alternative therapy had really worked for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, like I said before, I wasn't going to talk therapy. I was getting dragged to couples therapy. So, like, I hated that process. I was just miserable doing that. Um, so I was like, well, this is just going to be another thing. And if it works, consider me lucky. And then Mm -hmm. if it doesn't like either I get on an antidepressant or I kill myself. And Mm -hmm. if I get on the antidepressant, I still might kill myself. So there was really one option, one way out of this for me. Like, cause I was convinced this was my life now and this is just how I am and I'm forever changed. Um, but I started microdosing and, you know, there isn't a lot of data about microdosing, but I was really uncomfortable having a full-blown psychedelic experience. These were not drugs I ever tried in my party days. I was never curious about LSD, mushrooms, none of it. I thought, I thought these were drugs for burnouts um, and like losers. <laughs> and like I, I had in my mind the picture of somebody who takes psychedelics and it's so funny that I'm doing this now because I was so far off. Right. You know? Right. And uh, so I was like, well, I'll just start with microdosing. Let me build up some confidence in, in this process and dip my toes in first. I don't need to go all in. And um, within a matter of like three days, I was on the floor playing with my son. And that was the first time my husband had ever seen that. Oh. Yeah. So he was like, in his mind, he was like, holy shit. Like... <laughs> my wife is back the person I married you know and he always Mm. jokes around that he married me because I was quote unquote the normal one you know I was um I was the steady girlfriend that was just like always there and never you know we never fought and we had the most normal healthy relationship I've ever had and um so for him to see this like tiny glimmer of hope he got really excited for Mm. it so but I was still going through this process very cautious and um, not <clears throat> getting my hopes up too high. Cause you know, that disappointment, I knew it was coming for me, but I continued with the microdosing and was getting into a rhythm with life and was starting to feel good again. And, um, then we run out of mushrooms and I was like, okay, well maybe I just don't need to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but my depression started to creep back and we tried to grow another, flesh and mushrooms and it got contaminated They're they can get contaminated very easily obviously we're not doing this in a lab right we're doing it in our bedroom um so we tried to create a sterile environment as much as you can but you can't control factors um and how does it become contaminated just something in the air that floats Um, like he would whenever he was inoculating them i think um you have he, to inoculate. So it's like a real process. It's a process. Oh, you, you were sent you syringes. Just, you should have just gone to a farm in Virginia. <laughs> I know. I know. But then it's like, we, I've got two kids and a job. And like, <laughs> I don't have time to go like peruse farms in rural Virginia, you know? Um, Can I just check out your cow pack, yeah, sir? They, they know what we're looking for, too. I'm sure they're used to it. Right. Yeah. So this was like, and this was a way to do it. And, it, and to us, it wasn't a controlled environment. No one knew we were doing this. We were too public servants like 
my husband has worked in DC politics and has a lot, has a very great network of people here locally. And we didn't want anyone to know we were right. doing this. So it wasn't a situation where like we were asking our friends around, um, who had mushrooms. I'm sure somebody did if we looked hard enough, but we were, it was very hush hush. It was, first of all, no one really understood the gravity of what we were dealing with, with my depression. And then second, like, how do you ask your friends if they have a schedule one substance that could like send them to federal prison for decades? You know, like it's just, yeah, that's a, a question that not a lot of people want to ask. And so growing them was really the only option for us and it was working for a really long time. But when we couldn't grow anymore, it became obvious I needed to have like a, a true intervention. And that's when I discovered ayahuasca. And that was um, through one of our friends who, one of like the three friends that knew we were struggling. And I say we were struggling. It's like I was suffering from depression, but my husband was definitely struggling with keeping our life together. Right. You know, yeah, that's I'm, a lot of pressure. Yeah. I'm the hub for the family. Mm -hmm. And if, if I'm not functioning properly, everything kind of falls apart. And that's just the roles that we play. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it was, it was very hard on him. And I think that he is just now like getting out of like the post depression, spousal <laughs> blowback right. that happens when somebody goes through something, um, in, in a couple, but one of our friends who Daniel talked to frequently about what we were going through, um, was like, she had her own experience with ayahuasca and I, in my own deep dive of looking at psychedelics and what the landscape was like and what, why are they illegal? What's the history? Why mm -hmm. are our policies the way they are? What is the cultural history of this? I was somewhat familiar with ayahuasca and I knew that it was something that people were doing in South America and they're having amazing like benefits from it. Um, people um, would eventually just, go down to South America, have a, a week long experience and come back and feel like themselves again. And, but my friend was like, but this, like, you don't need to go to South America. Like he, there's a guy I know he travels around and I it's only by word of mouth. He's coming to New York city in two months. Um, just take a train and get up here. And I think that like, I wouldn't, have even gone on a train if it wasn't for the mushrooms getting me out of the very deep mm -hmm. hole. So at least like I was in a place where I felt okay to pack my shit and like get on a train to New York city and, um, go through this like extremely sensory experience of, uh, just like getting through New York city to Brooklyn where this guy was hosting the ceremony and, you know, looking back, that was so incredibly brave of me or yeah. like dumb. I don't really know. Like if that brave, says anything dumb, about it. Yeah. But no, I think I... you need to be a little dumb to be brave. Um, exactly. But yeah, I went to a stranger's apartment with 20 people that I had never met before, uh, including the, the healer um, and drinking a drink that he he made himself and I have no idea what's in it. I have no idea what, it, if it would test positive or anything. Like mm -hmm. we are in like the fentanyl days of right. our society and we all need to be really careful what we put in our bodies, especially with illicit substances. 
Um, but at that point, again, I've had a little taste of relief from depression and I was so, I was hopeful that this could be the thing for right. me. Like with mushrooms, I was like, I don't know if this is going to work. We'll try. But I've, and mushrooms and ayahuasca are very different. It's two totally different chemical structures. Um, but I knew that they were the similar class of drugs. So I was very hopeful that ayahuasca was um, going to be what helps me. So I had a few ceremonies with that and that completely transformed my world and allowed me to start building my life back. And I don't think without ayahuasca or without that very big experience with psychedelics, um, I would have gotten there. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what started this whole entirely new trajectory in my life with what I'm doing right now. Um, it was an, and it was a miserable experience. <laughs> like it's not a recreational drug by any means. I don't know right. why anyone would just like want to take that to get like to party. It's, it's for yeah. me, it was like physically extremely painful. Um, and you get, you vomit, you get diarrhea, you cry uncontrollably, you laugh uncontrollably. There's moments when like, you just, you just don't know, but it's, it's doing something in your body. It's moving your energy around. It's all that stress and trauma that we store in our body. And we don't know how, but like we store it in places like, and in, in some people it's different in me. It was my gut. Like it was, it all came out of my system and I, I woke up the next morning and it wasn't like I woke up being like, I am healed, you know, <laughs> like, but as time went on and as days went on, I started to observe and like things would shift. Like my perspective would shift on things and I would be like, whoa, well, this is something that's not good for me and I need to change that. So I slowly started to change the things in my life that were not working for me. And to this day, still changing things in my life that are not working for me. And I really do credit the ayahuasca for that. Yeah, I feel like the for, from I haven't tried ayahuasca. I feel like it is in my near future. Mm -hmm. um, but I did. I have heard that, you know, it gives them the opportunity to make some changes that they were scared to make previously in their and, you know, yeah. in their life prior. Yeah, I mean, you people that deal with depression, you get stuck in these loops and these trains of thoughts where you you keep telling yourself the same story over and over. It's like you, for everyone, it's different. But for me, it was just like, you're not worthy of any of this. You don't mm -hmm. appreciate this. Like you are, you've been given every single gift in the world and you, you're just squandering it. You, you don't love your children. Your children will end up resenting you. Uh, so it, you get stuck in these loops and I found that the ayahuasca broke me of that, of that line of thinking and mm. like it cleared the deck so that I can create new narratives about myself. Oh, see, that's what I need to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really powerful. And if you, if you do the diet beforehand and you really take it seriously and you go in there with an open mind and you're willing, you, you understand that this is not going to be the magic pill for you, that it is on you mm -hmm. to fix your life. And, um, you can go into that experience with an open mind. It can be an extremely effective tool. I've heard people with crazy stories of 
walking into an ayahuasca ceremony and, you know, dealing with debilitating arthritis and their hands are all cramped up on like the fingers are all cramped up on each other the next day, like they can spread their hands open, like their arthritis. And like that, yeah. that's like the exception here, right? Like we, we still have so much to learn about these medicines, but also culturally people in South America have been doing this for centuries. Right. So there's something to this, right. you know, if it wasn't working, this wouldn't be a practice that's currently upheld today. Yeah. And and that's pretty much was after that ayahuasca ceremony that you decided I'm going to work on decriminalizing yeah. plant medicine in DC. No. Cuz I remember when that was on the ballot. Yes, yes. It was definitely not my first thought at all. <laughs> um but I was watching Decriminalize Denver and that was the campaign to decriminalize mushrooms for the city of Denver. And that was going on while we were going through this process of like trying to grow our mushrooms and succeeding and then failing and then finding ayahuasca. And so being, having experience in politics, um, my husband's worked on a few campaigns as well. We were like, well, let's, you know, let's call up the campaign organizer and see, like, I mean, you can find anybody on the internet now. So <laughs> Um, we connected to, with him over Facebook and we had a, a really good call with him and just ex asking like, what are the citizens of Denver saying about this? Like, what is law enforcement saying about this? What, you know, what, what are, what are your marketing materials? How are you talking about this in the general public? And, you know, for us, we were just like curious about what our impact could be. I think initially we were thinking of just utilizing the our network of political people um to just educate i guess you know we never i never wanted to be a front person for anything <laughs> i was always really uncomfortable with attention i assumed <clears throat> that my husband would be the one that had like this amazing career and like things would take off for him cuz i mean he was perfectly positioned to do that he's worked for a politician before so it, it, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to be the spokesperson for women everywhere who feel themselves. It was more like, okay, we had, we had this conversation and this conversation led to a connection with other people and let's, let's go have conversations with them too and see how we can help. So it was really just like connecting the dots as you go, like driving in pitch black and like, all you can see is like the next step. Yeah. Um, but we kept taking more meetings and then eventually um, we got connected to Dr. Bronner's folks in DC. And so Dr. Bronner's is this hippie soap company that has all natural ingredients. They support. It. Oh yeah. I've used it for like probably 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, I love the peppermint. It's my favorite. The mm -hmm. peppermint and the cherry blossom. They're my, oh, they're my jam. Yep. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I know Dr. Bronner's, but like, I didn't realize that they were into this. Oh no. Yeah. Role. Like, so they were, they've been really pivotal, pivotal in getting cannabis reform through. They were very active in hemp reform. Um, they, you know, David Bronner puts a, a lot of money into causes that he really cares about. And a lot of that is regenerative farming and drug laws. Um, they were the ones that were sponsoring the Denver campaign. And David is, is pretty politically savvy. He's got a team of people here. 
that he pays to be their like social activation team. Like they will put together a protest or they will try to engage with DC council on issues um, that are important to them. Anyway, they, they were talking to Dave, the team here and David were talking and they were like, I think we could do this in DC. DC is, was at the forefront of cannabis reform. Why wouldn't we be at the forefront of psychedelic reform? Mm Mm-hmm. But they knew that the campaign couldn't be run by cannabis folks because it's a very different kind of subject matter. And psychedelics at the time carried a ton of stigma that I think cannabis has ripped away a few of those layers already. But um, they were talking to Kevin Matthews, the guy in Denver who we who got us our start. And Kevin was like you need to talk to a couple that I met, Melissa and Daniel, (coughs) excuse me. Um, they, you just need to chat with them. So like, he didn't say much about us, but then the team here started to go on Facebook and look us up and turns out they had already, they already knew my husband through his time at DC council and when they were working on cannabis reform for the city so they had my husband's cell phone number already, which was extremely fortunate. <laughs> and at this point in time, we've connected enough dots that I like I had identified key people in the city that, you know, if we were to do something, this is her, who we would do work with. And one of those guys was Adam Edinger, who is um, the cannabis guy in D.C. So my husband um, sends me a text message and he's like, guess who I just talked to? I was like, who could be anyone? (laughs) (laughs) And he was like, Adam Edinger, they want to take us to dinner and like talk about psychedelics. I was like, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So, um, again, not really thinking that I would be running a campaign, but, um, we, we went out to dinner. I shared the experience that we went through and what we did. And they were like, you are the perfect person to like spearhead a campaign mm-hmm. and be the face uh, of healing and psychedelics for the city of DC. And I was like, you are insane. I am <laughs> never doing this campaign. Never like, say never. I know it was, it was true. <laughs> I was convinced that like they had taken crazy pills. Cause like I was never, I was never that person even speaking in public was terrifying to me. I was so cool with just being in the background. That's, um, that's crazy. Yeah. But so we had a back, we had a few months of back and forth about doing this campaign. And I was like, our, it got to a point where like, we wanted to get on the general election ballot, like the big presidential ballot, you get way more voter turnout, which increases your likelihood of success. Um, And they had timed it where they were like, December of 2019 was like the last opportunity to get the paperwork to the Board of Elections so that everything can get approved in time and that we have enough time to get signatures and submit everything to get on the general election ballot. So we had been going back and forth with them and it was them like trying to convince us to do this. And we were just like, no, 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 we'll help in the background, but like, we're not going to do this. So then Adam calls me and he's like, you know, I... Like, you know where I stand on this. I think you should do this. But I I completely understand if you don't want to do this. Um, And I was just like, I can't, I can't guarantee 
my children's safety in this situation. Mm. Like at the time, nobody was talking about mental health. Nobody was talking about psychedelics. I didn't know what was going to be said about me, what was going to be said about us. Uh, I didn't know if they were going to not get invited to kids' parties from school anymore. Like, would all the moms at school, like, just completely turn away from me and, like, think I'm some weirdo, like, drug person that is just, you know, abusing my children and, like, having drugs in our house and just being really dangerous. I, I had to, like, go through that process to, like, figure out what was the worst case scenario. And... I hung up the phone. We went to bed and I was laying in bed. And I was just so upset. And my husband's like, you should feel good about this decision. You know, like you got this thing has been hanging over your head for a few months. Like you don't want to do it. We, we can't guarantee what's going to happen to our family. But like, I, why are you upset? And I was like, I feel like this is an opportunity because mm. the, the last thing that Adam said, he was like, if you don't do this camp, if you don't want to submit this paperwork, like we're going to go ahead and do it anyway. So I knew that if I wasn't involved in the campaign, that it would look drastically different than what a campaign that would be run by me would look like. Mm -hmm. And the messaging would be different. And I don't know if it would have worked. Um, the cannabis activists, God bless them, are, are loud and, you know, very open about their use of cannabis. And um, that is... That kind, that strategy can be really divisive with certain corners of politics. Right. And I knew that you get one shot at a first impression. And it's the same with this issue. It's the same with anything. You have one shot to make your big splash in the public. Did I want it to be a big, loud campaign that was really colorful and, like, you know, in your face? Or would a campaign that was run by a working mother that was led with compassion and led with facts and science and an experience and experience and personal experience with, you know, and, and extending compassion to others and being open and honest about what I have gone through and what is wrong with our system. How would that look? And I just had a feeling in my gut that if I was running this campaign, that it would be successful because people would hear me. It, and in my mind, it's like, well, if I, a person who, you know, had a supportive family, had, you know, no trauma in my life that was like truly super notable. Um, if, if I was that close to taking my life, being the well-resourced person that I am, being the very privileged person that I am, very fortunate to have the life that I've had, if I was that close to suicide, how, what is this experience like for other people, you know, that don't have the resources that I have that, you know, don't have a spouse that's really supportive or, you know, have parents that they can fall back on. Um, so I knew that I had a feeling that this issue was much bigger than, than what, it, what we were hearing from society. And uh, I knew that if I was, I took a chance and I, and I said, if I'm just open and honest, hopefully people will be receptive to that and will understand why I took the risks that I did. And maybe they will, that make them feel compelled to take action and, you know, demand that our governments take this issue seriously and pass laws that support people that are dealing with these kind of issues. So the very next morning I woke up, I called Adam <laughs> and I said, okay, 
I'm going to do this campaign. He got so excited. He's like, I'm calling the attorneys right now. We're going to draft up all the paperwork. We're going to go to the board elections. Today is the last day. Oh my gosh. Yes. So we submitted it on the very last day. And it was, I remember just seeing like my address on official like ballot initiative paperwork. And I was like, holy shit, this is very real. Like this could totally blow up in my face. But in my mind, it's like I went through what the worst case scenario is. Like we're banished from society. We are marked as the weird people. We have our scarlet letters on us. And, you know, and I told my husband, I was like, if that happens, we can just pick up and move. We've been in D.C. for 20 years. We've navigated through, you know, two recessions now. Um, you know, we've we've had really we have really great work experience that we could just take somewhere else and no one will know who we are and we can just start over. So that was my consolation prize is like, OK, there is it's not the end of the world if this doesn't work out. At least I have my health. You know, at least I feel like I've got my life back. I can go and take what I've learned from this experience and just somewhere live somewhere else and live peacefully. But again, you plan and God laughs. Um, <laughs> so we, after we submitted the paperwork, um, we were about to get on a road trip to uh, South where our families live. We were going to Alabama for Christmas and I think that whole ride home, we were just kind of like, oh shit, what did we just do? Like, what's, <laughs> what is our life? Like, we, we were like, because as soon as we got back from the holidays, I was kicking off the campaign officially. So mm. I knew when after the holidays was through, our life was forever changed in one way or another. And like, we didn't really talk about it with his parents. I never talked about this with my parents. They are not like... They were, my parents are very cool in many regards, especially from like they're immigrants. So usually parents who are immigrants are like super duper strict right. and um, very protective of their children. So, like they risk so much to create a new life in the U.S. for their children. And my parents are pretty cool about things, but this, <laughs> no, this no? would have, they would have been like, Melissa, you can't do this campaign. And I really think this will be a career, career killer for you. And you know, you've got two graduate degrees and you're wasting your career on something like this. And what's the point of doing this? Like they wouldn't have understood this at yeah. all. So I didn't talk to anybody about it. I only talked to my husband about it. I talked to a few people that worked at DC council off the record. And, you know, some of them were like, this could be successful, but I don't know. Yeah. You know, it depends on how the campaign goes, you exactly. know? But it was, um, it was definitely like we, we were walking into the unknown when we were getting back from the holidays and, um, but it was, it was, it was a crazy experience, you know, like 2020 was a crazy year for me. I mean, for everyone, but I'm sure, especially for you, you what did I sign up for? Yeah. But also probably one of the best of the best year of my life. Like I will never forget that because it shifted everything for me in a completely new direction. And I, I do feel like I found my voice and mm. a lot of these things that used to scare me, like public speaking and, you know, being on camera and, you know, having like 15 minutes of fame, it was just like I, having a spotlight on me was okay suddenly because it was so above and beyond any hangups I have, you know, like oh, I hate the sound of my voice or yeah. I hate the, how I look on camera. It's like, I, it, it, I, 
overcame all of that because I knew this issue was far too important than to be concerned with something so trivial as my voice or how I look on camera, (laughs) you know? Um, So I got over a lot of things and I got a lot of confidence back in 2020 um, because, you know, recovering from depression is a process. It's, there's not like one moment in time where you're like, oh, I'm not depressed anymore. It's like very long and arduous process. Like it's still something I work on to this day. Um, it's a daily practice for me. Um, it, it involves like being active and, and having my diet in check. I definitely like don't do it perfectly all the time. It took me a while to get to this point even just cause a lot of my time post depression has been in campaign or running a, a brand new organization and, uh, in a burgeoning industry. And, now it's, it's like, this is my next phase of healing really mm-hmm. is, um, putting it into a daily practice and f- creating a system that works for me so that I'm never in that situation again. Um, cause like one thing that has lingered is, is the anxiety, but I was managing it through like completely diving into my work. But yeah. then like in my idle times, it's like, I would sit, my brain would still be running like a hundred miles an hour. Cause when you, I was running a campaign while working full time too. So that was like a crazy thing. What did they think about you doing this? You know, cause I, it was, it's DC government. Yes. Yeah. DC government. It's very small. So at the time that all this was happening, I also changed jobs and I went from being in, at the hub at city hall to being in, um, in an agency. So I was, I was protected by a few layers of people. And also I wasn't going to the office every day when I wasn't seeing That's people right. and having regular meetings. That's so right. like, I had this amazing cover where like we, I wasn't going to the office. We're all behind zoom and, um, teams and, you know, it, it never, I made sure that it never disturbed my work, which means I was working around the clock. Um, I never missed a deadline. I, I, you know, I, I ensured that my day job was good and that everything was taken care of before I did anything with the campaign. Mm. So, cause I knew that if the moment that I would slip up at work, that would be, then it would be a problem. But if I don't give them an excuse to, you know, call me out on something and my work product is good. Like I, that gives me good enough cover. So I was really fortunate with the timing of all this. Um, even though running a campaign with not having, especially a ballot initiative campaign where you need to get physical signatures by people. Mm, Yeah. Like that in 2020, in 2020, right. And that was sticky waters to navigate through for sure. And we had to change DC laws so that we didn't have to collect somebody's signature in person, um, that you could send the ballots to people's homes. Um, so we had to, we had to kind of like weather a a period of time that we didn't know if the campaign was going to continue. Like we kicked it off and it was going amazingly well. We even shifted it online, started doing whatever we needed to do, Facebook ads, Instagram, town halls. We did it all online and the campaign was going well. But then we had this issue of actually getting signatures that we didn't know how we were going to get through it. So I had to very patiently wait while DC council was putting together multiple emergency legislation packages to make sure like things don't just completely completely explode in the city Mm -hmm. um so like 
you know, protecting healthcare workers and making sure there's supplies. Like I remember, like I felt like I had to wait for my right time to make our ask. Cause like, we're just a, a ballot initiative campaign about psychedelic drugs. Like it's, I, I knew that it was not a top priority for DC to change their laws to adapt to our campaign. Um, but we got some laws changed within the third round of emergency legislation that was wow. passed by DC council that allowed us, um, for somebody to self-certify. So when you have a, uh, when you're doing a ballot initiative campaign, you get signatures and you have somebody that gathers the signatures and they witness the person signing that it's actually them and not fraud wow. as somebody just signing names for people. So there's a, like an affidavit and everything. So we had to change laws so that a person can self-certify that they've witnessed their own signature so it's like kind of crazy and we had to change the form and, um, and my argument was that like, we can't let our democracy die in the middle of a public health emergency. Like this is the foundation of everything that we're doing, right. you know, the government must continue and, you know, there's elements of our democracy that must continue. Otherwise we're not a free country and it actually worked. Like it was like the, the argument made sense to, it does make yeah, sense. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. After that we were off to the races. Yeah. And you led the most successful ballot initiative yeah. in the history of DC. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 76%. That's crazy. Yeah. And now you are the political face, it seems, right? Uh, yeah. For, behind, in front of psychedelics. You are just... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we won the campaign by 76%. I truly think it was because... And I'm not tooting my own horn here, but like... Go it ahead was, and it toot was, it. It was... <laughs> toot your horn. It was very much like a regular person story, you know? Mm -hmm. And I... Because I am a regular person story. It's funny. It's like at one point I would have like news crews at our house and like this entire crazy setup with cameras and lights and all this. And then Netflix was obviously filming parts of our campaign for, mm -hmm. I was in how, how to, to change, change your mind. mind. Yeah. yeah. I watched that. Yes, I yeah. remember being like, I know. <laughs> and I did read, you had a, a, a wonderful piece. There was a wonderful piece written about you in the Washingtonian too. Mm. I really enjoyed reading that. Yeah. That was probably one of my, the most favorite things out of the campaign was, um, the, the most normal psychedelic advocate ever. Yeah. It's like, it, it was funny to me. It's like, I can't believe it's, and it's weird. Cause on one hand I would have, I'd be, I remember the day after the campaign, I was written up in high times magazine and the wall street journal. <laughs> and I was like, this is such a strange dichotomy, right? right? Where like I'm, my name is on the wall street journal, but also in high times, which is like an iconic cannabis magazine. But wow. Yeah, it was this weird moment of like, what is my life? Like, what am I, what am I going to do with this? Like, I got, I accomplished this major thing and we educated so many DC residents about psychedelic drugs and, you know, what's wrong with our healthcare system and what's happening with these medicines. And, you know, I wanted to do something with this. Mm -hmm. I felt like this was an opportunity and like, I just couldn't go back to my old job, you know? Yeah, no, you, you I mean, you are now the face of, of a movement, mm -hmm. you know, that you, you now are connected to Rick Doblin, you know, you just had a briefing last week. Yeah. Um, 
wow, it's just the things that you're doing mm-hmm. is just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really like, all this is very much not about like what I personally want to accomplish, but it's very much like, what is the need for this, these medicines to get into the hands of American people in the safest way possible and the most affordable way possible. And I truly think that this federal advocacy piece has been the one piece that was missing prior to me creating psychedelic medicine coalition. Um, there was no organizing body, um, kind of creating a, a strategic pathway forward for psychedelic federal policy. Um, I had watched cannabis reform, just having the policy background that I have and just seeing how that disjointed effort was like the states were progressing like rapid fire and then the federal government was, you know, left behind. I mean, they weren't really left behind, but I think that cannabis industry was so excited about the progress that was being being made at state level a lot of focus went there and then there wasn't an effort to organize the voices in cannabis reform for the federal government and like i said you get one shot to make a first impression so the first impression with cannabis was that there the, the lobbyists flooded the gates and um the the quote-unquote industry didn't come together and have consensus building it was very cutthroat and Uh, A lot of what could have been amazing small businesses or small growers, you know, thrive. It was kind of just like corporate cannabis took over Mm. and um, left the little man behind. And also there's this huge criminal justice issue that continues to go unaddressed with um, the disproportionate amount of black men that are still in prison for cannabis offenses while people can run to a dispensary and, and get their cannabis. So like there's a lot of holes in the in the policy space that, that never were really addressed. And now, you know, in Congress's mind, it's like, well, we're going to let the States do what they want. And, um, we're, we, we're not going to put, I'm not going to hang my hat. There's not right. very few until recently, there's been very few senators and representatives that have been willing to hang their hat on cannabis. So, um, seeing that, And then knowing what the psychedelic space was like, a lot of the culture is like, is indigenous to the West Coast. And it's very much like a West Coast cultural thing, Um, which is why I think there was a lot of excitement about the DC campaign doing so well. Mm -hmm. Um, But I knew that for this issue to be, to have an impact on Congress and actually like change laws that supported people having safe, affordable access I knew that I needed to create an association that represents the entire movement Um, because associations are really powerful. Um, The NRA, it's like, there you go. There's one association that's been extremely effective in getting laws that benefit their members. Um, There's a reason why they have offices all around the Capitol and um, they're very, they work side by side. They are the go-betweens between industry and lawmakers. And they do kind of synthesize what, what really needs to make it through and what doesn't. Um, and really strategize uh, on, on, on the path forward. So I created Psychedelic Medicine Coalition. We launched it in January, 2021. And 
we immediately realize that like before we ask for anything, like we need to educate members of Congress. There is very little knowledge about mm. the potential of psychedelic medicine on a federal level. So since then we have uh, educated over 250 offices on the Hill. Um, we've done two briefings now. Uh, our most recent one was last week where we had Tim Ferriss zooming in with Rick Doblin, who's the uh, executive director of MAPS, who's taking MDMA through clinical trial with the FDA, yeah, who's been work. who's been a pioneer in doing this for like 37 years, doing it all with um, philanthropy, no investors. He's got a public benefit corporation that's doing it because he really does want this to be something that the public can benefit from and it's not an investment play um so you know we are here to really be a conduit for the psychedelic space to speak to their federal government and work with them on addressing a lot of the issues that will need to be addressed so we have multiple psychedelics in clinical trial right now um we have MDMA that's about to be approved. Psilocybin compass pathways is taking psilocybin through FDA clinical trial. They will, they will be approved probably a year or two after MDMA is approved. Um, mm -hmm. This is going to be a part of our system. Absolutely. But what will this look like? And it's not a drug that you can just say, this is approved. Let's send it to offices so that doctors can give it to their patients. It's not a traditional pharmaceutical. Right. Um, if this requires at least the protocol for MDMA requires two, two practitioners in the room at the same time, mm -hmm. 16 hours prior to your first treatment with MDMA. I believe that there's three that you get and then there's 16 hours after. So this is a huge time commitment to just get one patient through one session with MDMA. And our system quite frankly, can't handle that. Like we barely have enough therapists for people. Um, a, a lot of this work is, is not reimbursable. So people don't want to do it. You have to pay out of pocket for it. Yeah. Um, a problem. there's a huge lack in therapists of color that can speak to different demographics of people. If we've got people that are dealing with racial trauma, they do not want to go to a therapist that looks like somebody that has inflicted in racial trauma right. on them. Like it has, it's, it's, you're so vulnerable in these moments and the things that you're dealing with are so deep that, you know, you, you, you got to ensure that somebody's comfortable or otherwise it could be a really bad experience and it can have like negative effects on somebody. Exactly. So it needs this to be is, handled with care. Yes, a lot of care. absolutely. This is a completely different paradigm that we're trying to insert into our very rigid healthcare system that does not have a mind body connection angle to it at all. <laughs> um, yeah, it is. It, it's, there's a lot that we need to address and, you know, our coalition can be really effective in doing that with bringing people together and um, getting getting the policymakers to understand that this is not a political bomb that you're taking on. This mm -hmm. isn't going to be brought up in your reelection campaign because that's really what they care about. Right. They are lawmakers when they're they sitting are. in Congress, but ultimately they're a politician and they, they have keep to their job. <laughs> they have to cater to their voters. Yeah. So um, they are very concerned with getting behind issues that would n impact them negatively. And, you know, it's just figuring out what they care about and what they've gone through in life and like finding a way to wedge 
a, a story related to psychedelics in there, you know, and the, the first like crew to lead the charge in this are veterans. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think everyone is kind of on the understanding that, you know, if we could bring two polar opposites on the political spectrum together on this issue, this can be really effective and powerful. It's like the one thing that people on the Hill have been bipartisan about is psychedelic medicine. Um, so veterans are a very specific demographic. They garner a lot of compassion. Mm-hmm. They've sacrificed a lot for our country and they've really been dealing with like a terrible situation with the mental health post-war. Right. Um, even, even, um, not even in war times, but like there's issues that people in the military deal with. Like we had Wiz Buckley, who is uh, executive director of a foundation called No Fallen Heroes. He was a top gun pilot and he was at the briefing last week and he was sharing that like his issues didn't come from combat none of them did. It was just the nature of the work and trying to be in a plane where you're dealing with like multiple G forces and then landing the plane and the noise and the fact that he, he constantly hears a noise in his ear to this day. Um, you know, there, the, the nature of the work is so different and so intense that, um, if we're not addressing any of these issues, like I think the military is going to have like a, I mean, I think they do have a recruitment problem, mm-hmm. um, but you know, how effective can they be as an organization if the soldiers aren't well right. and that, that, that brings together two different angles of the political spectrum. Absolutely. Well, I think your story is also something that's extremely important because you were completely fine mm-hmm. before and you became a mother there and, and for women, I think it's also hard for them to really want to dive into psychedelics. Um, I know that there are a lot of articles now coming out that like, oh, moms who mushroom or, you know, um, which I think is great because I I also microdose and it's very effective for me. But I think your story specifically, especially because a lot of women do deal with postpartum depression and don't know what to do next. And, um, and postpartum psychosis, yeah. which, you know, obviously we can, you know, and we've seen can be such a big issue. Oh, yeah. Um, that's, it's tragic. And I don't know. And that's kind of what this whole thing has brought up for me is that, like, there's just so little focus on women's health, you mm-hmm. know, and like the psychosis piece of this is like, when in American society did we see a mother harm her children and think that she's of sound mind and she's a bad person. Right. You know, and not look at it through a lens of, oh God, there was something wrong with the situation that she was in, Mm -hmm. whether it was her brain failing her, her body failing her, her, the system failing her, you know, like it, it, I, I don't know when we've lost focus of, of, you know, giving a shit about moms, you know, I felt very alone in my process of Mm. doing this. I mean, like I've said, it was me and my husband trying to figure this out. Like I didn't feel comfortable talking to any medical, medically trained person about the fact that I was thinking about taking psychedelics or I was taking psychedelics to help myself. Like I, 
knew that they're not trained to see that as a medicine. You know, right. they are, we are trained as a society to see something like psilocybin mushrooms and LSD, you know, that is a party drug. Right. And that when you have children, like there's more on the line and there is a huge risk coming out and saying that. So it was, it was very much a private battle. Um, I, I was frustrated at like the medical system that was available to me. I was told there was only 9% of women experience postpartum depression just really? looking anecdotally at my friend group, it's like, no, like it's way sure. more than yeah. 9%. Like, you know, and also like some of the depressions, like, oh, it's just hormonal changes, baby blues. It's like, yeah, that may be true. But like, that doesn't help a woman who is struggling, Right. you know, just to sell, tell her like, oh, here's, here's a drug that you'll have a really hard time getting off of, or well, it's just baby blues and it'll pass and you just need to weather this storm. That's like extremely frustrating. And it was frustrating. I was frustrated at the fact that like no one was checking on me. Right. You know, I think that is, a, that, that is another huge issue with yeah. postpartum depression. And, you know, it's very unlikely that the mother is going to go seek help. She has a ton of stuff happening. Yeah. You know, especially if she has a second or third child. Oh yeah. Like so your whole you're not life like, changes. Oh, I'm going to drop everything yeah. and go to therapy. Maybe yeah. that'll work. Yeah. And like the mountains of money that you're spending on childcare, especially in a city like right. DC, it's like, okay, do I, at, at the time I could have benefited from weekly therapy. That's what best case scenario, $300 a week. Yeah. Um, maybe you could find somebody cheaper, but assume it's 300, it's like 1200 a month. Like, it, that's a lot. That's yeah. a lot of money you that you're really be investing. In yeah. Moms. Yeah. Like we should be investing in our moms. We are a hub for our families. Um, we create life in us and that's magical. And that comes at a price that we're willing to accept. If there are resources around us, you know, I'm willing to go through the changes that my body goes through to bear a child. I'm I've, I've been through the identity crisis, you know, I've been through the mental, like, I think it's all worth it for to to for my family and this is something i've always wanted but what i'm frustrated with is the fact that no one gives a shit about moms and like there's mm. very little medical research out there that benefits us and is specific for us yeah. you know and i think at the time i was i had an iud put in because i was like i, I really don't want to get pregnant with my third kid, if I'm in the situation that I'm in, I was like, give me the most like thoughtless birth control that you can give me. And, um, I was assured that this, this new IUD that they created was, um, was very little hormone absorption. So there's not a lot of effects on the mood. I, that my, my ayahuasca experiences were, it, that's when the thought at post ayahuasca was like, take out your IUD. It's really it's contributing to your depression. So I deep dove into this and I found out that the particular one that I was on was banned in the UK. And oh there God, was a really? bunch of anecdotal evidence about, um, women get that had a history of depression that get into depressions with their IUD. Um, some of them have committed suicide. So like I, I, I made this yeah. discovery. I was like, what? Like, but I, I believe my doctor believes that this is safe, but right. like, right. Her intentions are good. But right. What is what, how much knowledge is there? Yeah. It's like, that. what do we really know about these things that get approved by the FDA? Like, is it, 
is it all like based on data and science or are there political factors in there? Is it however uh, much you spend mm -hmm. on lobbying Congress to make sure something goes through, you know, like there our our system is just so jacked that like it, it, for me, like going through this experience and feeling that la like having amazing health insurance through DC government and like feeling like I don't have enough resources was extremely frustrating so if like, that's kind of my goal with all this is like, not only to get these medicines in the hands of, of Americans and have them safe and affordable, but like, also let's talk about the issues that we never talk about. Right. Let's talk about improving our mental health care system. Let's yes. like do research on brain degenerative diseases and seeing like, we have these tools, like let's apply them in ways that we think they can be really helpful for people let's talk about women's health. Let's get more women in clinical studies or have like women only clinical studies mm. that's just focused on issues that we deal with. I feel like there's so little that's like known about our bodies and how everything interacts with each other and the, and the systems that we're working with that it it's, it's, it's almost overwhelming at times when I'm doing this. I'm just like, Oh, there's so much that needs to be fixed. But if I can just take things like one thing at a time, um, we can slowly chip away at all these problems. And then one day we'll wake up and be like, Oh, like this actually kind of works for us. Hopefully I wow. don't know. <laughs> you are leading the charge and I'm really, I'm so grateful that you are willing to, to talk about it. Yeah. With me. So, yeah. Is there anything you like to add? Like an, a, a short note that you would like to, I could talk to you literally all day <laughs> long. And if I didn't have kids to pick up, I would, I would I literally try I know, to, I know. um, but yeah, is there anything you'd like to add? Yeah, no, just check out our website, psychedelicmedicinecoalition.org. Um, also, I have, um, it hasn't officially launched, but tomorrow I'm launching uh, the Psychedelic Medicine Political Action Committee. Um, this is a, a PAC that is going to elect leaders that believe in science, and um, we're really hoping to engage with the American public with this. We're going to run a national PR campaign and do a bunch of great messaging out of this. So, um if you want to get involved, just reach out over our website and, you know. and you can find all of that yep. on the psychedelic medicine, psychedelic medicine coalition.org or the psychedelic medicine pack.com. Awesome. Um, and yeah. I'll put that in the show notes. So yes. everyone knows where to find that. Um, but thank you for joining me in my tiny closet, yeah, you know, for it. closet confessionals, I Bigger guess. Bigger than my closet. <laughs> <laughs> we, could, we could have our own show. Yeah, yeah we could. <laughs> well, thank you so much. That was Melissa Lavasani, founder and chief executive officer of Washington, D.C.-based Psychedelic Medicine Coalition. For more information on Melissa and the Psychedelic Medicine Coalition, you can click on that scrolling fortune cookie right there in the middle of your screen. Also find it in the show notes. March's issue of Authentic Insider is out. Check it out at uh, traumasurvivorthriver.com. That's traumasurvivorthriver.com. You can also listen to episodes of this podcast there. If you haven't already, please subscribe to my email list. Again, that's at traumasurvivorthriver.com. You can get Authentic Insider magazine in your inbox monthly. Thank you so much for joining me today. Join me live next week, March 22nd, when I speak with Dana Corcoran with the Sisterhood Against Sexual Assault. We will be discussing sexual assault and prevention awareness. You've been listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. I'm Lurley Vinstock. Thank you so much for being a part of the conversation. Take care.